0: Welcome to a new episode of Full Stack Cast. In this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at the humans behind Fullstack Fest, our ever-growing roster of amazing speakers. Their talks inspire us by widening our perspective and deepening our knowledge. But behind each one's technical expertise, there is an often lesser-known well-rounded human with a wide range of interests and a unique life path. Fullstack Fest is an inspiring conference about software. It's happening on the first week of September in Barcelona and it's organized by Codegram, who also produces podcast. I'm your host, Choose, and today's guest is Brian Douglas. Brian is the host of the Jamstack Radio Podcast, and he's currently developer advocate at GitHub, where he focuses on developer engagement by fostering a community for third-party API development. He used to work at Netlify, one of the most notorious players in the Jamstack space. Thank you for, uh, for doing this, especially on the weekend. And it's probably quite late, right? W- where are you based? Uh, I'm in here in uh, San Francisco, Oakland, California. Sorry that it took so so long to uh, schedule this, this podcast, but I was really looking forward to it. So thank you for making it. Yeah, especially because I'm I'm really curious about the Jamstack, and we've used it actually at our company, and but it's mostly like some colleagues used it and just kind of shared, and they showed me, but I have no idea. So I I have a lot of questions that probably a lot of our audience will have, like what is this? Why why do we want it? Like this kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think we should start with uh, probably like what is the Jamstack? How would you define it to let, let's say a normal developer?
1: Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll I can explain the Jamstack, and uh, basically it's a uh, Uh, I guess it's claim to fame is the jam. It's the JavaScript APIs and markup. And what really it is, like, I think a lot of people get caught up on, like, the word stack being part of the actual name and trying to figure out what this thing is. But essentially, it's just like another way to say front end. And um, I guess if I zoom back a bit, so I used to work for this company called Netlify. And uh, this term kind of, it it didn't come out of Netlify, but we kind of co-opted it. Um, mainly because like Netlify is a, uh, it's a, well, essentially it was a static site host. Uh, but then we found out really quickly that it was more than just static because when you have a JavaScript and an HTML site, um, you're not limited to only doing static sites. You actually, it kind of, you can do a lot more with it, especially when you use other tools like Contentful or, um, some sort of third party API tool, like even like Firebase. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're no longer limited to like the word static. And that was like the hurdle we had to get over in trying to get people, convince people to use a tool like Netlify or GitHub Pages, is that the fact that you could actually use more with your site that would normally be like quote unquote a static site. Um, So that's like that's like where Jamstack came from, and that's like what it means. And I think there's like a whole kind of movement built around this now, are kind of kind of co-opting the the term itself. So like it's not just about front end; it's now like People like Mongo who are like coming out with their it's like their Atlas product, Um, so it's actually the the hosted service for a Mongo lightweight interactions APIs, Um, and then there's also I mentioned Contentful also a bunch of other CMSs that are built around the Jamstack where it's just like API first, and then you you bring your own CSS and your own styling to that sort of that realm
0: yeah i think probably the first thought that comes to mind is static website as you mentioned uh, especially if you're not familiar with a uh, jamstack you think oh it's just a static website so i, I cannot do you know i cannot use databases i can u- not use all this stuff but i guess it relies on a whole ecosystem of tools that you can kind of plug in and, and use right
1: yeah yeah and i think uh i think so if you look like zoom back to like static sites back in like the 90s and like uh, actually, around the early '90s, mid '90s, joking around, I, I took the Space Jam dot com. So Space Jam being the and uh, uh, it's probably international audience, but Space Jam's like the '1990s uh, movie with Michael Jordan where he played against Winnie Tunes. Oh yeah, yeah. Is, yeah, so there's like a it's it's common for people to pull up spacejam.com dot com and see that the entire site still works, and that movie is like what 25 years old. And uh, the site itself is around 25 years old. But the beauty of that is like there's nothing, you don't need to re-update that or anything like that. There's no like maintenance, there's no security vulnerabilities or whatever because there's a exposed SQL or databases on the web. Um, so that site still works. And I think we've gone full circles from going to spacejam.com to all the way to like these massive, like monolithic Rails applications where we're constantly trying to rebuild the web from the ground up. Yeah, uh, And I think like one of the co- more common things are things like routing. So I remember when Angular and even like when back, uh, Backbone and Knockout, like the, the biggest problem with those sites were that they were so client side driven that there was like routing was broken. So if you click the link, then the path to your your link wouldn't change. And that was like a common problem when like you had to create the Angular router and the React router and the Ember router and all these different routers just to make the web like it was supposed to be like for, since 1995. Yeah. Um, so like with... When we, when we talk about static sites now, what we talk about is like mainly static, statically generated sites. So when you have like Jekyll and Hugo, and though you're writing either Ruby or JavaScript or Python or whatever language of your choice is to make your site work, all that gets compiled down into like an in index.html. And that's sort of like where we've gone full circle. Where Now we're sort of fighting to get back to putting just like html files on the web and hosting those in cdms uh, and sort of trying to move away i guess jamstack is not forcing people to move away but just giving people another option than to try to stand the entire blog on a giant uh, like node or rail server that costs lots of money every month and not doing very well um, internationally because it's not dynamically um, rendered on CDNs.
0: I guess uh, for blogs and and things that are mostly, that you can compile or deploy time that don't have a lot of dynamism, it's perfect. Yeah. But I've also seen people using it with uh, also kind of more advanced use cases with dynamism and stuff, and I wonder how that works.
1: There's been like a, a bit of a movement, so there's like this other word, serverless, which is another another buzzword that people are been trying to dissect and try to realize, like, you know, there are servers, even though it's serverless. Like, um, the term... When you talk about wireless networking, like there are definitely wires when we have wireless networking. So, like with serverless, there are definitely servers.
0: just you don't see them? Yeah.
1: yeah, you don't see them. You don't have to worry about them, and you can run code um, wherever you want, whenever you want, and on like on demand. So, the same dynamic aspect that you dynamically rendered like servers and hosted like large monolithic applications, you could actually sort of manipulate serverless to do what you'd want. So, things that would that whenever you like, do the, the bundle or you bundle your site into a statically generated site, uh, you actually, because the process of bundling your site down to index HTML through a generated site, either through a build tool or through a static site generator, uh, you could actually dynamically rebuild that site every time something happens. So imagine you have a form and you're, you have a CRM tool and you might want to use Jamstack uh, to approach this problem. So every time you add a new user to your, I guess, quote, unquote, database, uh, whatever tool you might be using or database you might be using, Mm -hmm. you can actually, every time you hit that save button, regenerate the entire site um, on demand. So, um, yeah, because I think what's what's more expensive is having a site running on a server nonstop waiting for interaction. Uh, But if there's something that doesn't need to have like real-time feedback, then you can sort of like do some hand waving and just bundle that site down and compile it and then have your your database refresh um more than likely pretty close to instantly depending on what you're using
0: that's a pretty that's uh really flipping the problem in a way like thinking of every write you do to a deploy yeah so it's like every time you write a new user you write any data you're just deploying on a website yeah that's really that's really interesting and it's it's I mean, I guess it's possible to optimize to the point that it's fast enough, especially if it, if it doesn't matter how fast it is or how, you know, not everyone needs to see the information.
1: Yeah, there's some creative things you can do with caching too. There's a difference between caching a giant megabit site compared to giant uh, caching like kilobits um, of a site. So if you have like index HTML, cache whatever is not changing and then redeploy and re-render things and like sort of cache and validate your um, the things that need to be changed. And I, I didn't really go into detail too. So like the, um, I was calling this like a serverless side rendering is what I was calling it. It was, I don't know if that term has actually been picked up. I know um, the the folks at Prisma, um, some of my conversation I had with them, they were co-opting the term and they were using, it. I'm not sure if they actually went to market with their, their um, pre-rendering service, um, which honestly their pre-rendering service is an open source project they use internally. Um, and they happen to open source, but essentially what serverless side rendering is what I've just explained before. So rather than constantly having a server server side rendering and keeping that up and up and running and, and caching for you on that server. Instead, you, you leverage the cache, uh, but then you validate the cache whenever something actually changes or something actually needs to change. Uh, and you can use that with Lambda functions or serverless functions, um, sometimes they're called. Um, Anything's like on AWS or Azure, um, you can do get some of that sort of serverless side rendering from.
0: That is definitely a, quite a different paradigm than what, what we're used to. So I guess from the kind of more traditional developers' point of view, uh, an obvious question would be, oh, this serverless thing, yeah, I've heard about it, but how is it in terms of performance, for example? Because you think of a network call every time you want to do something, but is that kind of restricted to something that doesn't necessarily have to be really efficient? So serverless
1: functions, they do have limitations. Um, so like you you will have to, because they're all on... A, like Let's just talk about Lambda, because that's what I have the most experience in. So Lambda, they're all hosted on AWS... Um, Data centers around the world, so then you have to think through how how many times you want to have that hosted other places based on how many people are going to using your your product. So you have to think about um, where you're actually hosting that. Now there are services. Um, I think like uh, some of the services actually I don't think I actually ship, but let me just like let me pick on Netlify um, since I know that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Like they take away the they abstract away of you trying to pick out what CDN to use. They'll they'll do the work for you so then you'll you'll just pay a little more or you'll you'll pay a little less or whatever it is based on how much work you want to do um but you do need to think about that There's also another issue of like uh cold starts, so because these are on demand functions that get run um if you haven't hit this function in a while, sometimes there's a cold start. so when I say cold start, like literally if people who are familiar with like things like heroku, heroku will if you're on the free plan, your code will basically be cold and then you will have to like basically wake up your site for it to actually run. And they do this uh on purpose to sort of um justify having a free tier but also not having people abuse it. Um I think AWS is in the, the same sort of realm where they do have cold starts. Also anything over five minutes of runtime I believe they believe that's the limit the last I heard. Um five minutes of runtime. So if you're doing anything sort of dynamically rendering things where you're scraping all data in your database and you just have to make sure that that time is computed within five minutes. Um, so that's another limitation. Like if you want to have some background jobs um, as part of your dynamically rendered Jamstack site, then you want to make sure that you can compute that in, in within the, the, a timely fashion. So I think a lot of the use cases that Jamstack really gets attached to are marketing sites, blogs, blogs, um, some lightweight like user ma- um like managing uh, user accounts, uh, what am I trying to say, like databases or CM- CRMs. Um, I think the a lot of people are sort of like pushing the limits with it because they like the idea of using the free tier of a lot of sites to ship a site really quickly. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there's going to be some things that probably aren't going to be Jamstack ready. I just haven't found those yet. I'm not sure if there's like a conversation that happened on Twitter or not. I'd love to hear those conversations and so maybe people have attempted Jamstack and maybe have not uh, been successful.
0: Within the Jamstack, like in the same way that you can call a cloud function somewhere, you can also call a specific microservice that you own for you know a very specific kind of thing that you cannot do with cloud functions. It might be not efficient or not cheap.
1: Yeah, and this is this is also the the thing about the Jamstack. I think a lot of people sort of look at the Jamstack and look at all the companies that are using the term and say, okay, these are the only things I could use that are Jamstack, and which is not true. Um, so like the company I used to work for at Netlify, like the the site itself was built in the Jamstack, uh, which. Basically, what that means is the front end, entire front-end portion of of that site that you look at at Netlify.com is actually pointing to an API that they're hosting elsewhere. So it's it's simply, um, you could have dynamically run APIs hosted on Heroku or in a Rails app or wherever you want to host it. Mm -hmm. Um, The difference is that it's not a monolith. So the API itself is not directly attached to the JavaScript or the front-end React or Angular or whatever you want to be running on the front-end. Uh, and this is a beneficial, so, um, my first exposure, well, I, I, was using Jamstack for a very long time without even knowing what it was called, or even though, like, even know, I like knowing there was actually an infrastructure around what I was trying to do. And when I joined Netlify about, uh, three years ago, um, I've since left about a year ago, but three years ago I joined and I had, my first job was literally to take the Angular code and make it React code. And I did this in about like about six weeks. I think it was about three weeks to do it. And then three weeks to fix it is the joke that I always, I like to say. Um, but basically what made that really easy to get done was the fact that the API itself, I didn't have to actually touch the API. The API was already working and it existed. And all I had to do was point the React app, consume the the, uh, the API into the React app, similar to the way it was doing in the, the Angular app. So there was no there was no downtime when I was creating an entire new front end. Um for the Netlify site, uh, and that was that was mainly because it was it was built in the Jamstack, and it was a separation of concerns, I guess, is the uh, the the phrase I guess I could use here.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because maybe at the beginning it sounds like it, um, Jamstack and serverless kind of live in the same world, and you're supposed to use serverless or something like that. That's how it might sound maybe yeah. by reading some text, but then it's just about decoupling. Uh, you know, if you have your backend decoupled from the front end, then you're already on the on the right. Yeah, path.
1: and yeah, I would I def, I would definitely push back definitely that serverless is not part of the Jamstack. I think it pairs really well. Uh, the same way I talk about GraphQL a lot, and I think GraphQL pairs really well um, with the Jamstack, especially if you're experimenting with it. If you haven't really got bought, if you haven't got buy-in on it yet. Um, it's a good way to experiment because your API itself is separate from your front end. So if you need to build like a GraphQL gateway in the middle instead of a regular API gateway, um, that's a possibility. And you can experiment without having the entire cruft of a framework to, to walk around with you. Um, and I would also say, too, is like the like you're you're able to build as much as you want of this on your own as you'd like. So, um, like, there's a lot of tools out there. Um, one of them that comes to mind is Spike. Spike's a, it's a static site generator that was built in in house by Carrot Creative, um, who are behind the Cartoon Network. Uh, they built a bunch of like sites for um, Vice as well. So a lot of these, um, I guess, um, television networks as well as some uh, news networks as well. They they're based in they're based in New York on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they built Spike because they they needed to solve a problem. They needed to ship stuff really quickly. And they needed to do it in a language that could be sort of moved um, from other places. So, like React and Angular, though they existed, wasn't like a was an option for them. So they built something very specific to their use case, which is building a bunch of really quick, um, highly used sites. Um, because you can imagine any sort of like Cartoon Network site um, that had each each one of those sites that had those TV shows on there all going to be highly trafficked by all these like yeah adults and kids who are really passionate about this uh about these uh I guess learning about these TV shows um mm-hmm. so they built this and then their back end was also a bunch of uh uh a markdown files too as well so they were able to leverage their own to- in-house tools and build a jam stack from in-house from the ground up
0: yeah i think that's another very good selling point about like writing websites that um are going to receive a lot of traffic and ha- yeah, ideally they should be entirely CDN based because i remember in my company the project that we did with the jamstack it was something like that i think my colleagues told me that they did some kind of static cms or something like that cms that compiled the the content as markdown files or json files and then just serve it over cdn everything absolutely and and there was absolutely no problem even though they run a huge marketing campaign and lots of people went there but yeah i believe
1: the title of this podcast is a uh, full stack cast yeah yeah which is like it goes on the term of like full stack fest uh to the um Uh, The conference that's coming up as well, but I I I feel like the word full stack, and I'm curious of what you think. uh, The word full stack developer is kind of like it's a misnomer, and it's like almost a phrase that gets co opted into like all these different types of developers. So I I come with the opinion of thinking that full stack is a term that is really changing in its meaning. So when you like really talk about full stack developers, you're really talking about someone who does really good backend code and can, can connect. Uh, can probably connect to the front end um, because more than likely, if you're a modern web company, you're probably using a design system or using a, a bootstrap like type library where you're pulling CSS uh, from the shelf. So, no longer do you have to be like a CSS whiz, or perhaps maybe you are the CSS whiz and you're great at animation, but you know very little of the back end, mm-hmm. but you're still a full stack developer. So, like the, the term full stack is getting squashed further and further closer to like maybe front end or back end and uh, i think with jamstack it's also it's the same it's the same thing too as well like well you might be really good at javascript or you might really know like the react framework uh, which i think react today is a framework even though most people are still calling it a library Um, or you might just really be good at infrastructure and putting up servers uh, but you might not know what javascript is and i had that very same uh, every job i've had as an engineer i tend to either tier further towards the front end or further towards the back end, but i never go across the, unless I'm the only solo developer on the team. uh, I tend to not always uh, contribute to the entire full stack. So I think with Jamstack, which I'm going back to uh, the reason I bring this, this this sort of controversy of full stack is that the cool thing about the, the Jamstack is like, if someone has a CMS that works really well and it's built on API, and all you need to do is just point your your front into it, so that way you can just consume data, and then have maybe the marketing team go just con- go stri- directly to the the actual CMS. Like then that's a perfect fitting for you. So if you're a CSS or a JavaScript whiz, then go ahead and use one of these off the shelves uh, API CMSs like Contentful or Take Shape or uh, quite a few other ones. There's actually quite. What the other thing? is like the the ecosystem of, of Jamstack has grown so much so it's hard for me to even know everything that's out there which is like an awesome feeling that I can pick the best tools for the job I, I need to get done
0: uh, yeah it's, it's quite cool because probably when you started uh, using it it was kind of like more of a niche thing but now it's like people are using it they're, they're pushing the boundaries and they're developing different tools so that's cool. It's it's a lot more mature than people might think. Like, um, I think people, a lot of people are still stuck with a kind of monolith kind of mentality. And they say, well, this is a stable thing that we know, you know, the problems it has, we know very well scaling problems we've dealt with all our lives. So it's just kind of the acceptance yeah. as, as a fact of life.
1: Yeah, and it's like the um, one analogy I like to use too as well. It's like, um, I don't know if you you play music, but I play music. Uh, I've been playing music since I was a kid. And the one thing that you notice is when you're in high school or in your in middle school or whatever it is, and you want to start a band, uh, like the one thing you do is you you start developing your band logo and you start developing your band like album art. <laughs> and all you do is focus on like just that portion of it. But then you never spend any time learning how to play music, like with in a group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the same thing with like developing. Like if you want to start a side project and you want to start a new company or a new startup, like you tend to spend a lot of time maybe focused on uh, it, it's also flipped around. So like maybe you spend all your time practicing music, but you never actually put play in front of people. And I think with startups is the same way where you spend way more time trying to perfect your Rails code or your Django code or your your WordPress code. And, but you never actually get your stuff to market. And I think what's cool about the Jamstack is that you don't need to actually perfect writing code uh, and getting really good at like knowing the framework. You could actually just focus on your business and your product. And like you're seeing like all these movements, like in Indie Hacker, where people are the, um, uh, all these apps on Product Hunt, where people are just shipping stuff like every weekend or every month they're shipping a new product. And I think that Jamstack really pairs well with that because you, you take out the tedious things of trying to set up your, your your entire user database. Like instead of doing that, why don't you just use Firebase to use your authentication and use that as your database, mm-hmm. uh, or use another one of these APIs like as uh, Pylon's another enterprise ready. Um, it's a e-commerce app, or sorry, e-commerce API. So rather than trying to figure out like how can I get Shopify shoved into my React app, why not just go with like Pylon, which is an API and then like shove that into your React app and it works perfectly and elegantly. Uh, You don't have to worry about trying to, from the ground up, trying to rethink how e-commerce works. Like that's, uh, there are some problems out there that I I think are worth solving, but there's a lot of problems that are already solved. And I think things like e-commerce and payments, like why would you, there's no reason for you to rethink how payments should work when like Stripe has a perfectly good API and Braintree works just as good. So like reach for things off the shelf so that way you can focus on shipping your business. And I mentioned this too as well, because um, so I, I host a podcast called Jamstack Radio. And one of the later episodes that are coming out, mm-hmm. it's with the, actually, it's the next episode that's coming out. It's not out yet, but it's with an indi- individual. Um, uh, I was thinking of his name, JC, JC Hyatt. So he's based in Mississippi. And him and his, his uh, co-worker and colleague um, had an idea of building an app. And the, it was an app to basically teach developers how to work out. And like basically lift and give them workout plans, and this app like this app itself started as an email list, and they would just get people signing up with the email list and then they would send them an email of all their workouts and then obviously that they got product market fit and then they just build a site. So rather than like go from the ground up and figure out how to like figure out user authentication and all this other stuff, uh, they went directly to a static site um, and they got a statically generated site through Gatsby. And then from there, they had like they could stand up exactly what they were trying to accomplish, and then from there, they still had people sign up from the emails. Like, there's no reason for them to start like actually setting up a user database when all they needed is email list to send like the one email a week to tell people what to work out.
0: This is really humbling, actually, because it's uh as as engineers like always we always tend to just focus on the yeah on the technical problems and then you know proof of concept or whatever but then. You know you have to deploy everything, and we think we have to do everything properly before actually going to market. But actually, we don't know if it's going to work. So exactly, we want to put it in front of people first, even if there's no user database. Yeah, even if all the data is static and just served out of a JSON, it doesn't matter. Yeah,
1: or even if it's just a an Excel spreadsheet, like you could literally use a Google Sheet. As you obviously you don't want to keep sensitive information here, (laughs) but if it's like just keeping emails and maybe like keeping track of user IDs in a in a. hopefully a password-protected Google Drive, um, then, like, go with that first. Uh, But make sure as you scale, like, start getting security as, like, number one and, like, start thinking of how to protect, you know, like, you want to definitely keep compliant, but for the sake of just seeing if people will actually buy this product, like, go with the email list and then slowly add in, like, the database and the CMS and all this other stuff. And um, I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why WordPress is doing so well and why this is like the, the, I guess, the de facto way of a quarter of the web um, going to that because a lot of people did not want to have to figure out how to do, you know, user signups and database and emails and, you know, just getting a site hosted somewhere. Like, why not just go to WordPress and do that? And I think that worked out really well. But I think after a while, people got a little similar to like the I was complaining about the Rails and the Django's and the large monolithic websites like WordPress is a, it's a giant lift. And it takes a lot of work to keep that up to up to date and keep it secure. Uh, and also, WordPress developers—they pay a lot of money. Like they get paid a lot of money. It's like seventy-five k um, for like maintenance of like this. WordPress uh, developers? Yeah, I mean, wow. well, for a WordPress site. So like you can contract and literally you get a nice little pretty penny for um, for a nice size site from a, a nice wow, size company. I had no idea? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty profitable business, and like it's a it's a niche that I think if that's what you want to do. Like you can definitely make a lot of money from it, but I think the where the web's going and where like now we see all these indie sites going, like there's no reason to own all the stuff. I think even a better example is like if you look at the, the company Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like the the most popular example of or one of the earliest examples that I know that was publicly th- uh, talked about, where Instagram didn't actually leverage their own data centers and they didn't leverage their own like knowledge of infrastructure they actually went directly to AWS.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and because of that, they were able to scale really fast. So by the time that Instagram was acquired by Facebook uh, back in like what, 2014 or 2015, um, they were like a company of t- like less than 10, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they were acquired by, uh, I don't remember what the number was, maybe a billion or something crazy like that. Um, but yeah, but I, what, I'm, what I'm mentioning is like they, because they went to AWS to like to a solve problem, which is like hosting images Um, They didn't have to worry about like being the experts and scaling up data centers and multiple continents and countries like they literally just had a product that sort of exploded and gained traction really quickly and they got their quote unquote product market fit um, by literally just focusing on their one problem, which is Mm -hmm. getting cool images on on your phone um well get them off your phone and in front of people who want to look at them
0: i think that's uh that's really good i think the community at large can learn a lot from this movement that's kind of well connected to like quick product design and just kind of put a product in front of people rather than worry about you know which kind of database are we going to use in aws how much it's going to cost and stuff which is something that's so it's like candy for developers you know we love to- uh, talking about it thinking about it but then it's at the end of the day i I'm, I'm thinking a little bit of uh, netflix actually because I think Netflix at the beginning, at the very beginning, they didn't even stream, right? They, they just like would send you movies over the mail or something like that. Yep. They, they still do. And I think... Yeah, DVD.com. They still, they still do?
1: Yeah. It's a, it's oh, a, really? it's a
0: separate site. Uh, DVD
1: DVD.com. Uh, you can still get DVDs to the mail. Oh, wow. Um, at least in the US. I'm not sure if it's international.
0: I think if the developers at Netflix, they, they would have focused from the very beginning to how to do a scalable streaming service. And also at that time, which was... A long time ago, so probably a lot harder. I think Netflix wouldn't exist. Like it would be just a bunch of nerds just trying to figure this yeah. out and just getting tired of running out of money. <laughs> yeah, the
1: thing is though, there was a, like a lot of Netflix clones. So like the what you look at Netflix today, which is the streaming, there was actually a lot of clones. That actually Netflix mm-hmm. came out. So the streaming started when I was. I remember when I was in college because I remember this specifically. Um, prior to Hulu coming out, um, there was this company called Juiced. Uh, and there was like it was one of like um, maybe four or five of them that were stream this random like anime and then random like movies that you would never heard of. Maybe like movies that were just like lower in the totem pole in Europe somewhere. Um, but yeah, I would watch like these random because I didn't have cable in college. So I would just watch these random like streaming videos and stuff like that and anime. Uh, and then Netflix came out and they're, like I never looked at that thing ever again like that was like the netflix became the thing like my cable mm-hmm. but it was genius and like i think um, they just kind of found a niche like obviously they had a large infrastructure and a large team under them once they got to that point but i think in order to compete in the future like now we're talking about all these these ipos that are coming out this year which is like uber and pinterest and airbnb and yeah you know whoever like all these ipos are coming out like i think I don't know if we are ever see another time where we're going to see a whole wave of IPOs. I think this is the last wave of companies that didn't have to be profitable um, to be able to IPO. Um, I think going forward, you're like, profitability is going to be a, a really large, you know, um, green light for companies to be either bought, acquired or IPO. Uh, and This is like me, just sort of personal opinion. Like I don't have any insider information or anything like yeah,
0: that. I'm, I'm curious actually, like what do you think that that change will happen? Because the trend seems to be like, oh yeah, you definitely don't have to be profitable. Ten years from now, probably not uh, either. But what do you think it's going to change? This, this I,
1: I, so I think these these companies that we're we're seeing IPO that are not profitable, like Lyft is not a profitable company, but they at the IPO at seventy what twenty two billion dollars. Wow. Um, I if you look at the companies now, so go through AngelList and all the seed funded Series A companies, like these are all companies that will be required to be profitable by the time they get to sort of exit stage. Um. Mm-hmm. Either that or they're silently be acquired by a large company like Microsoft or mm-hmm. or um Google or whatever it is. So I think you've got to, you have to look at it in cycles and you have to look at it in a wave. So like as all these waves of companies are now sort of now exiting or figuring out what their next thing is, now you have like a whole nother wave of companies right behind them. So these might be like all these. I don't know. Be, being in San Francisco, like you kind of see all these sort of like the waves and like what's cool and what's hot and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because you're just inundated by everything. Like all the all the delivery surfaces, like that's that's really cool. And I remember when there was like probably 10 times as many when I first moved to the Bay Area. And now there's like a few. There's like Caviar, which was already acquired by Square. It was like DoorDash, um, which I think was acquired by Yelp or partnering with Yelp. Or that no, was Grubhub. Grubhub was acquired by Yelp. And then there's like a, a like a bunch of other ones that just aren't around anymore. So, yeah, and there's not one of them I can think of that's not either acquired or largely partnered with a, a larger company. Um, so maybe you won't ever see any sort of delivery apps um, IPO, uh, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like there are marijuana apps that are also coming up now, so that could be a big business. Really? Yeah, here in the Bay Area, <laughs> um, so California it's a legalized uh, for marijuana rec- recreational. Oh, yeah. Um So there's a large company's called like Weed, Weed Maps, which I think is still around. Uh, which literally just tells you where there's weed shops and then ease, which is like Uber for weed. So if you wanted to have it delivered to your door. So I think that's like the next wave of companies to now that more, more States in the U S are legalizing it. But I don't know, this is me just going off the rift and just speculating to be quite honest and, and Frank, but yeah, I think, uh, I think companies will definitely have to be like a profitable business. I think I see a lot more companies getting sales teams earlier on. Um, mainly because i have friends who are literally in sales and getting jobs at very at smaller companies that i would have thought would have had sales that's just my thoughts but yeah tying that back in the jam stack like i think this is the perfect time if you have like a a, a niche um that you think you could solve within the jam stack like i think this this space is ripe for development and development tools so um i know this a uh, company i just uh uh, I know of because I just came from Jamstack NYC. I spoke there uh, about GitHub Actions. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a quite a few companies that are just up and coming and are solving a specific niche. A niche. So, like for example, if you have a static site or you have a a blog or a marketing site, like it's very common for you to, if you happen to be more tiered towards the back end and not really know how to do a lot of CSS, that you one grab from a template. Um, the problem is that most, if you do, if you grab from like a bootstrap template or something like that, every site with, that does a bootstrap template looks exactly yeah, the same. Yeah, it kind of looks
0: like. A... Yeah, you,
1: you look at my blog, and my blog's actually a template. So if you go to Brian Tuggles on I me, mean, it's a template that I sort of I, I messed around with a little bit to make it not look like it was a stock template, but it really is a stock template, template with a little effort. But there's a company called, uh, I believe it's called StackPath. Um, and their goal is to basically, instead of you spend all your time, uh, trying to figure out what template is like, uh, like a Bootstrap template, and then like do what I did and essentially just like pull out. Sorry, StackPass not the right one. Um, I forgot what the... it's not StackPass. StackPass with APIs. Anyway, there's another company where basically you pick the language, you pick your your static site generator, so if it's Gatsby or whatever, and then you pick your design, and they'll make your design and your static site generator or your React app, whatever, work with this template. Oh wow! So. So yeah, you basically pick the template and then it works out of the box with whatever stack that you're using.
0: That's wow. I mean they, they can do this in an automated process, right? there has to be human intervention. Uh, no,
1: they're they're do That's that's their their claim to fame. Uh, I think they're in beta right now. Oh wow. And I apologize. I, I literally had their sticker. Nice. I thought it was StackPath, but I'm looking at Stack Path sites and that's not it. Um so maybe I'll shoot you over the link whenever I realize who they are and then they can find their way in the sh- But yeah, they, I mean that's like a that's a, a niche way of thinking about the Jamstack that everybody's trying to build front ends for really cool apps or really cool ideas, but don't have the time or maybe even the the money to go hire a designer to build something custom. Um, so that's a unique, I mean, there's a lot of different CMSs as well. So like you have an idea to maybe rethink the way CMSs work. Um, there's an idea. There's a, another, so I did a free Code Camp um, tutorial. And uh, it was like a video series, and this was like a series I was doing in person. So I was doing like a like a workshop at boot camps, and teaching boot camp students how to build restaurant apps on the Jamstack. So essentially, if you do like mm. most restaurant apps, or sorry, I just said restaurant app. I meant re- restaurant sites. So most restaurant sites, you expect like the basic things, which is like the location, like give me an address, give me a phone number I can call, how can I make a reservation, and then I want to see the menu. And maybe some pictures of food that'd be, that'd be, so those five things are basically like all I would need from a restaurant site. Mm-hmm. The honest truth is that most restaurants don't have a website and the ones that do have a website are severely outdated and don't have phone numbers, don't have addresses. Yeah. Um, you don't know what the food looks like. You don't, you don't know if the restaurant's clean. Like you, um, there's like all this information you just cannot find from a restaurant from their website if they have one. And then you have to you have to sort of comb through Yelp or some other site third party service to figure out like what is this what is this place? So I was teaching students how to go to like, restaurants and build them build restaurant sites for restaurants that don't have sites, and then like attempt to sell it to them. Hmm. And that was like the uh, the entire uh, workshop I was doing. Uh, it was like a, a video series on Free Code Camp. Uh, I think. it was, Went pretty successful. I think there's a lot of like little gaping holes. And I think that the code I wrote too had some errors that I was fixing while people were watching it. Um, but that was like a little, uh, another niche that people can sort of focus on the jam stack and like, instead of handing what $15,000 WordPress sites over and trying to demand that, which restaurants more than likely don't have that much extra, um, uh, capital to spend on a website which is more than the reason probably why restaurants don't have um, websites is because they just don't have time
0: exactly because they they already have customers and they have yeah no need for a website or they, they think yeah it's and something.
1: like they maybe they've scaled it a size where they just don't need any more any more business like you walk through like the the alleys of new york and there's some hidden gems in there that don't need websites like yeah they'd probably prefer to be a silent webs or a silent restaurant that no one knows about because that's that's cool And I I get that, but if I want to, you know, go to the restaurant down the street from my house, or just downstairs from me right now, like I have to search pretty heavily to figure out where what's the menu, and if the menu's changing, or if the owner changed, or if it's still open, or when does it open? So yeah, there's a lot of questions, and uh, I think that I mean, Web 2.0 was the the point where everybody got on the web. Everybody got Facebook accounts. Everybody got WordPress sites or blogs or whatnot. And I think now is a time where people sort of rethink uh, what they're doing. And I think, and something we didn't really talk about too as well is the fact, like we mentioned CDNs, but the fact that inherently by separating your concerns and separating stuff out of your, your, your front end portion of your website, your site inherently gets faster because there's not this big, hefty, crufty API or server sided rendered thing that you have to sort of, tag along every time you want to host it somewhere on a CDM. Um, So naturally, if you're only talking about like kilobits, then you can host this thing in like South Africa and a data center there or in Mongolia or whatever it is that people want to look at your site on a 2G phone. So then this whole term about progressive web apps, like that is now a thing that is sort of built in by default. Like it's not something you have to focus on, but it's something that's built in by default. And then like we... We also didn't talk about service workers or anything like that. But yeah, then that becomes trivial because like you already have JavaScript in your site. So if you just drop in a service worker in there, then you're even further ahead than most sites.
0: Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about Progressive Web Apps, but you just brought it up um, because it kind of ties very naturally with it. Yeah. I see also one, one thing that I like is that it ties very well with the whole continuous integration, continuous deployment kind of philosophy in a way, right? There's a, a whole push for, you know, just deploy or like, Commit to Git, push, and then de- that's a
1: deployment. Yeah. And I think that's a, uh, I, I, I work for GitHub, so full disclosure. And like, I am all four people <laughs> pushing through Git. Um, but I think I, it, it's, it seems to be the norm. Like, a lot of people who are working on the web, this is not true for a lot of other programmers, like, on the gaming space. Like, they're definitely in the perforce per But if you're talking about the web, and potentially also mobile, um, then Git's, like, pretty much where you're starting. So, as long as you are using Git correctly, where you are actually pushing to some service and you have continuous integration built in, then you get consistency in your code. So, like, for like, if you constantly are getting errors or whatever, like, you are gonna write a test for that and then make sure that test is checked every single time you you push it up to to GitHub. Uh, and then with the the CI, you have consistency. So that way, if you have consistency in your build, then you have consistency in delivering. And that's where like things like Netlify are. Um, I think Zeit also has a, a continuous integration or continuous deployment service as well built into the, the product, so you just consistently you don't have to worry about how I'm going to get the site live or who's going to do the deployment or when to be the deployment. It's just you deploy all the time, uh, and then that becomes that becomes a trivial part of like your workflow that you don't have to you don't have to focus on. And I, I think it's just a it's I think it's a sign of progress when we get to the point where now everybody's pushing. Like you're continuously delivering um, through through Git uh, and no longer worrying about how you're going to run your test or where you're running your test. Um, and then the cool part about that is consistency is then you can also, when we're now focusing less on running tests and running deployments, that you can focus on like, okay, when someone's looking at this, how can we improve accessibility? How can we improve speed? How can we improve all these other aspects that we sort of got lost that got lost um, when we were worried about monolithic applications, mm-hmm. now we can really focus on that. So I, I really enjoy like seeing more and more focus on accessibility at conferences, as well as progressive web apps, because now we're we're making the web good for everybody, not just good for everybody in San Francisco or good in the U.S., but literally making the web accessible and available to everybody in the, in the entire world. And I think that I think now when we like, I I know like. Our current administration here in the U.S. is like less globally centric, <laughs> but I honestly think like that's a, I mean it's a step back in the where we we're where we we're moving as far as the U.S. and I I speak for the U.S. because I'm a I'm a U.S. citizen, but I I feel like the world is getting way more global. Like the fact that I can have a coworker like in Amsterdam, and that's my closest coworker. Like that's that's amazing. Like the fact that we can. Talk and you're you're actually in career right now, like yeah, we're we're closer than we would have been ten years ago, um, because now we can have a conversation over the internet, um, and at different times of the day. Mm-hmm. So I think that as as long as we're we're thinking about that constantly, I think that's I'm not sure where that where we're going next. Like I I don't know if I put too much thought in that, um, about that. But I think uh, things like the I don't know the blockchain space seems interesting. Like someone should probably figure that out. I don't think anybody has yet.
0: Yeah, no, it's just, for now, it's just a buzzword to raise some capital, but hopefully in some time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly, yeah. But yeah, I, one thing that I, I have been seeing as far as the blockchain is, like, there is there is an issue with payments. Like, I can't go to Nigeria and say, hey, buy my buy my product or buy my cool app that I built, um, because they have to figure out how to, like, talk to banks and get that converted for you. And they have to use a third-party service, Yeah, which is fine, but then then that means my service has to use whatever third-party service um, that someone else is using. So like, for example, I had to make a payment to a uh, organization, and they were based in Macedonia. Um, so it was a nonprofit organization I, I believed in. But for me to actually pay them, I had to use a third-party service I'd never heard of. So then that third-party service, which like looks like
0: PayPal, but it isn't. That's That's a really big problem. If it looks like PayPal, but it isn't. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I had to put my trust in this product I've never heard of because I don't live in Eastern Europe. Oh. So then there's like this, this whole question. So like, despite the fact that like payments work in Nigeria and all over Africa, and I just have to trust those services that that's working for them. I think blockchain or rather not even blockchain, like the cryptocurrency space has an opportunity to sort of solve that problem. I don't think any of them have yet. Um, uh, but to solve that problem of trust, uh, of payments across borders, um, but yeah, I yeah, so yeah, going back to the progressive web app thing, I think because we're the web is global and it's more globally centric, and I think that that a lot of people inherently are putting their trust in things on the web. Uh, I think it only makes sense to make sure that our stuff works across borders and across continents.
0: Yeah, and my hope as well is that with all this that we've been talking about, I think it it all points to the fact that developing websites that are fast and work is going to get cheaper and cheaper. There's less things to worry about. There's more that you can leverage from third-party services. And if it gets so cheap that you can just prototype something in like a weekend and launch it and stuff, then I think it's probably a good thing because um, maybe some developers still think, you know, oh, this is a really serious craft. You know, you have to trust it to a craftsman. And, you know, it has to take three months to build and then lots of testing and stuff. But then this kind of goes against uh, progress or some idea of progress at least.
1: Yeah. And then i I going back to the Instagram example like the fact that uh I cite them as like one of the first that I realize and notice uh at least in the history of me being on the web and in, in uh technology or a developer um but the fact that they use aWS as their infrastructure it it spurred another like wave so we were talking about waves earlier of companies as the iPO like this wave of companies that are leveraging uh tools actually I want to say that this wave of companies that are going IPO—I don't know if they're actually leveraging their own data centers—and I think a major, I would, I'd be surprised if a majority of them weren't using another third-party cloud solution. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's like the being able to leverage other tools that have already solved a problem for you. Because um, it, it speaks more to like, yes, now we can solve on these, we can solve these better problems and solve these new problems. Um, so yeah. The web is exciting, and I think this this world is exciting.
0: Just to be a little bit of devil's advocate, just if you had to, um, if someone came to you and was like, oh, I want to use a Jamstack and make a progressive web app and stuff, is there a specific use case that can, you can think of that you would uh, advise against using the Jamstack that like maybe it's not the right time? Just what can't we do with, with it, in your opinion? You know,
1: I'm trying to think of an example. So, like, something that you would need a logged-in version for it to work. So, like... Authentication works with the Jamstack. I think that's 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 solved too with like things like Off Zero. Uh, but I think I don't know if I'd actually. I guess I would think like GitHub. But then that's not really limited by the Jamstack. So I, I don't know. I guess I can't really think of a, a good example. Perhaps a banking app. Yeah,
0: I was thinking of that because mm.
1: more than likely. Yeah, because like more than likely you're gonna want to log in, and you're gonna want to do specific things that might not be as great. I mean, you want them on a CDN, but you also want all that security and stuff to also follow you through. But then someone probably will prove me wrong and say, yeah, I can do it this way. But I would probably approach a banking app the old school way, mainly for
0: security reasons. Yeah, that's my intuition as well. Even though, again, I cannot pinpoint why and probably someone would be like, no, this is solved by this and this. We could make it secure anyway. So I hope someone will.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, and there's also like because you'd have to also you'd you'd be ending up building your own infrastructure cuz like you don't want to use a third party service if you're hosting sensitive financial customer data. True, that's um, true as well, yeah. But then again, you could use something like a I think Square actually has an open API and I think Square wants to I don't know how they stand if they want to be a bank or not. Um I know they want to own transactions and that's what they're really key on. So but if Square ever wants to become a bank, then they would naturally have all the regulated. It's like, and with the healthcare in the US, they call it HIPAA. But like the with finance, it's like, Fenra, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I think it's I different
0: fi- in every country, but it's a lot yeah. of kind of regulation. And like, you have to have everything auditable and stuff.
1: Yeah, so like is what I'm looking for is the the term I'm looking for. But basically, mm-hmm. they would be they would have the proper regulations to leverage those tools, and I think that's a lot of limitations on this is a lot of tools. Like if you're a government entity, like you can't just pick anything off the shelf or if you're a publicly traded company, like let's, for example, Apple, like they can't just use anything. Um, they, I think they use most of their own things, um, as far as infrastructure and servers. But, uh, yeah, that you wouldn't see Apple like this leveraging some, like, like small tool like Firebase or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes sense, though, in their case.
1: Yeah, and I, I say Firebase, but I, I'm sure someone's going to correct me. Firebase is not a small tool. like It's actually pretty large at Yeah, this yeah point.
0: it's pretty. And uh, yeah, I have just another question that I think is more like from the serverless world, because not so many people will be uh, kind of familiar or maybe trust the serverless development workflow. And I'm sure it's improved a lot over the years. I've tried it myself, and it's actually a lot better. But I wonder how how do you go about debugging cloud functions when you're working on a Jamstack application and working with a bunch of um, cloud functions on Azure or like Lambda?
1: Yeah, so my my interactions with Lambda specifically is with a serverless framework which has a a good debugger built in mm. because I'm running I I do a lot of stuff in the command line I just run the the um, AWS Lambda console um, locally which is also something that I think Netlify is using AWS under the hood. Um, so they also run the, con- the same console that I would use locally. They run it um, so you can see your logs. So very simply, like if you were to run like a node server uh, and look for errors whenever you run like um, uh, NPM run or NPM start, mm-hmm. um, and if something breaks, then you can kind of see it and you give a line numbers. So that's pretty much the way I would do it is by looking at the logs. I don't know if you get something better. I'm pretty sure someone's got like with API calls, um, you can also run things like Postman. Uh, Postman's like a whole standalone tool where you can actually provide the API, and then if the API like falls over or fails, you can actually look through um, the Postman tool, which mm. um, is a pretty cool tool. If you're using APIs, definitely use Postman. Uh, I believe there's something very similar to Postman um, for GraphQL as well. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of tools. I think this. Being confident in the tools that are out there available to you, I think it would probably be the best answer. Um, because honestly, I didn't know anything about Postman until I started doing it using serverless functions. And someone who knew more than I did showed me Postman, and it kind of changed my life.
0: Well, now, yeah, actually, I have a little side project I want to start. And my first reaction was like, oh, let's do this uh, proof of concept or the technical stuff in like Ruby or like Rust or whatever. But now I think i'm gonna go the other way around completely and just like start with a website and like try to get the gem stack going and stuff and just show it you know and and see if it works and then spend the time if if it's worth
1: yeah that's it so like when i my first engineering job uh, I did mainly backend so I was a full stack developer, but I was mainly just a back end and we had a des- we had designers to give us c s s and i I mentioned this because we had a we had a hack day and I remember the majority of the engineers that only focused on like the backend Ruby on Rails stuff, mm-hmm. um, their hackaday was less exciting when the presentations came because like we, we'd we spend all our time like refactoring code or building some code like our API or something like that. And then it would be underwhelming because like our PM would be there, our designer would be there. But then when the front end developers came in the room and showed off their stuff, it was like, oh wow, I totally get how this works. This makes a lot of sense. And I think it just comes down to like, if you spend all your time working on the the point that no one ever is going to see, that's awesome. Uh, But you might want to lead with something that people can sort of grasp and understand the concept of. Um, It's like essentially like if you work on the engine of the car, that's, that's cool. But if you like give the car a new paint job, uh, everybody's going to love it. People are just, they, they can only see what they can see, especially if they don't understand the concept um, so when it comes to like starting a, a new project or new business, like I, I am hands down always trying to do the CSS, grab CSS as quickly as possible. That way people aren't disgusted and run away from it.
0: Yeah, I can totally relate to that feeling because I also come from the Rails kind of background and hackathons is always the same. You spend all the time doing migrations, data modeling, blah, 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 all this stuff. And then at the end of the day, there's very little to show. And for you as well, the motivation kind of, you feel there's so much more to do to actually get it into a working thing. And I think the opposite, if you go the opposite way, and kind of to paraphrase, I don't know if it was Rich Hickey who said, said like, the data is the API. That's an approach that I take sometimes when developing front-end. It's just start with front-end with the data you need, then put that into a query in GraphQL and just hard-code it, and then worry about where the data comes from later. But you can actually build a whole app just by using this approach. And then later you can do a back-end or, like, you know, integrate with some third-party service. but it's a lot better than the other way around, I think, and, and keeps your motivation high more for longer, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, that's it. We run through all the all the questions, and I hope the audience now has a better idea and a lot less fear and uncertainty and doubt, which is something that there's a lot of around serverless and uh, JAMstack and all this stuff, just because it's new.
1: Yeah, the thing is about the, if there is fear or concerns or maybe there are a lot of devil's advocates out there, <laughs> uh, I honestly to say, like, this try building something small like there's a lot of projects out there i tend to build a lot of small projects throughout the year um just for fun because i want to learn new languages and try new tools out um but yeah i would say try something small uh and then see if you can build something all entirely on the jam stack and if you can't then maybe write a blog post about it and then then you'll you'll i guess you'll win if you're devil's advocate then you'll win if you aren't then um, then maybe other people could also provide solutions for you too as well. Or maybe there's a solution you could build if there's a missing por- portion of the GM out there.
0: Yeah, I think that's a general strategy that would work really well for the development community. I think Hacker News would be a lot smaller if people would just try things instead of arguing about them. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, people would understand each other a lot better, I think. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so, well, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in September at the conference and hear you speak about the JAMstack as well. Me too. All right, thanks. And to our listeners, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. If you want to see Brian on stage and many other great speakers, you can go to fullstackfest.com. Until next time and see you all in September.